All right, church. Well, let's do this. Let's take our Bibles together. And let's turn to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Last week we began our series, How Long, O Lord, in this great book of the Old Testament. And I want to pick up today where we left off. Chapter 1, verse 5 is where we'll start today. And as you're turning in your Bibles there, let me just tell you about something I learned this last week. I learned this last week about a famous sculpture of Habakkuk that you can see even now in Florence, Italy. The great sculptor Donatello produced this marble statue of Habakkuk. You can see this on the screen. This sculpture is called in Italian, Lo Zaccone, Lo Zaccone, which loosely translated in Italian means pumpkin head. <laughs> And from what I know about Donatello, I'll be honest, I'm not super familiar with Donatello's oeuvre. I'm actually more familiar with the Donatello from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> than I am from the Italian Donatello. But from what I know about Donatello, this was his favorite sculpture that he produced. And he actually would curse at it from time to time and say as he was sculpting it, speak, speak. And through that weird process, he produced this masterpiece that looks both humble and distraught. That's an apt picture of Habakkuk. I find it ironic that uh, Donatello said to his statue of Habakkuk, speak, speak, because that's kind of what Habakkuk says to God in this book. Speak, God, defend yourself. And amazingly, unlike Donatello's pumpkin-headed statue, God actually does speak in the book of Habakkuk. God actually does answer Habakkuk's complaint. Twice God speaks to Habakkuk after complaining. We'll look at the first of those replies today, and then we'll look at another one next week. He actually answers Habakkuk's com complaint, but when God answers Habakkuk, Habakkuk doesn't really like what God says. It's like, speak, Lord, speak. Okay, well, here's what I'm doing. I don't like that, God. That's essentially the way in which this chapter, chapter one, unfolds. So let's get into this this morning. You can write this down as number one in your notes. The first thing that we see in our passage is this. The Lord claps back. The Lord claps back. Last week we saw Habakkuk complain about the evil that's being perpetrated in Israel. Habakkuk complains about how God's people are getting away with evil. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Says Habakkuk in verse two. And you will not hear or cry violence and you will not save. Where are you God? Says Habakkuk. Verse four, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk, in those first four verses, he's speaking about Israelite leaders. He was tired of their injustice. He was tired of their abuse of power. He was tired of their sin and seeing sin abound in his country and see justice perverted. Now the Lord replies in verse 5, and the Lord says this to Habakkuk, Look among the nations and see, Habakkuk. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I'm sure at this point, Habakkuk's like, finally, God, all right. You're going to flex some muscles. I can't wait to see this. What are you going to do, God? What are you going to do? How are you going to punish these evil leaders of ours? But then God says this in verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. 
that bitter and hasty nation. What? Says Habakkuk. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians. I wasn't asking for that. I was looking for something else. God continues, verse six, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, they are a law unto themselves. Now what's going on here? What's the historical context of this oracle prophecy? Well, many scholars, including myself, believe that Habakkuk prophesied around 600 BC, probably during the reign of one of Josiah's wicked sons. Best evidence points actually to Jehoiakim, which was one of Josiah's wicked sons. And if that's the case, then Habakkuk's ministry straddled the days of both Josiah, a good king, and then Josiah's wicked son. Now, Josiah was a good king. He was a righteous king who established, reestablished Bible reading in Israel, Yahweh worship, in Judah. Josiah's father, by the way, was a wicked man. Josiah's grandfather was an especially wicked man, a man named Manasseh, who was the most infamous and wicked king of all of Judah's history. He even allowed for child sacrifice to the, to the god Molech. So, I mean, he was wicked. That was a great wickedness in the eyes of the Lord. You can read more about that at, at the end of Second Kings. Well, Josiah... When he came to power, he initiated all these reforms. He took the country back to a place of Yahweh worship, to, to rightfully serving God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And he actually tore down the Asherah poles that were all throughout the country, he tore down uh, any of the, the worship of Baals, the monuments to Baal, to Molech, any other foreign god. He didn't allow them to be worshiped. And by the way, Josiah, this, this good king, he started reigning when he was eight years old. His father was murdered, and so fatherless at eight years old, he came to power, and he initiated all of these, these reforms in Israel, in Judah, uh, as a young man. When, when Alistair turned eight, I did a little devotional on Josiah at, at his birthday party. <laughs> yes, I'm one of those parents. And I, I told Alistair and all of his eight-year-old friends, you guys, no excuses for not following the Lord. Look what Josiah did when he was only eight. He did this as a, as, a, as a kid and then as a young man, instituted all of these good things. But then here's what happened. Josiah died early in life, died in battle, and his sons, listen up, young people of Harvest Decatur, his sons were wicked men. He was a good man. His sons were wicked men. They turned away from the Lord. And Habakkuk, his complaint in chapter one, it sounds like the complaint of someone who saw something better, saw something better in Josiah's day, saw something good, and, and, and Judah was on the rise, and God was blessing, and everything was moving forward towards good days, and then Josiah dies, wicked kings come to power, and Habakkuk's like, bring it back, God, bring it back to that place when it was good. And, you know, Jehoiakim, if this was Josiah's son, the person who was reigning when Habakkuk had this prophecy, Jehoiakim was, a, was a, an especially wicked man. You can read about him in the book of Jeremiah. He was constantly battling with the prophet Jeremiah. He was trying to intimidate Jeremiah. He burned his scroll. He had a good prophet put to death, the prophet uh, Uriah. 
And, and if this was the guy who ruled in, during Habakkuk's day, during Habakkuk's prophecy, that's why Habakkuk says in verse 4, the law is paralyzed, justice never goes forth. He's even persecuting the prophets, Jehoiakim, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So Habakkuk complains, and, and you know, it's, God is answering. I'm sure Habakkuk's like, oh, he's going to bring another King Josiah. We're going to have another good king. We're going to have good leadership reestablished here in Judah. But no, God says, I'm bringing judgment by way of the Babylonians. What? Look at verse 8. Speaking of the Babylonians, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Remember God's promise to Abraham? Your offspring will be like the sand of the seashore, right? It's, it's turning that over on its head right here. No, your, your captives will be like sand in Babylon. At kings, they scoff. You know, that was the great pride of Israel. The kings, the sons of David, they, they laugh at the kings. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. That la they laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. They worship their own might. They worship their own power. The Babylonians, by the way, they were absolutely fearsome. As an army, they had a terrifying array of soldiers, chariots, military might. They did, in fact, eventually come to Judah and punish Judah, take away captives. The book of Daniel opens with the fulfillment of Habakkuk's prophecy. Daniel says this. You can read this on the screen. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that guy? King of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Daniel, along with his friends, remember his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they all were taken as nobles, captive into Babylon. They had to learn Babylon's ways. This was the fulfillment of Habakkuk's prophecy. This is what happened. This is how God judged the Israelites. And I'm sure as God is telling Habakkuk this, Habakkuk's like, what, Lord? What? This is your plan? This is what you want to do? That's not what I was asking for, God. Go ahead and write this down as number two. Here's how Habakkuk responds to God's response. Habakkuk, whew, he complains a second time. He's brash. He's bold and confident before the Lord. Here's what Habakkuk says. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. In other words, aren't you eternal, God? Can't you come up with a better plan than this? We're not going to die. You made promises to us. You're not going to allow us really, really to be swept away by the Babylonians. You swore by covenant that you would protect us. It's quite bold of Habakkuk to say this, to question God in this way. You know, remember what I said last week, though. Habakkuk is processing these difficulties, these complaints in relationship with God. This is an argument among friends, not among enemies. Keep that in mind as Habakkuk continues his complaint here. 
He says, oh, Lord, oh, Yahweh, you have ordained them as judgment and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. I think actually these verses are sarcastic. You've ordained them as a judgment, them, the Babylonians, they're more wicked than we are. How, how could that be right? How, how could you use someone more wicked than us to reprove your holy people? Verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? Some of you may remember Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Y'all remember that book? It's a book that awoke the conscience of America regarding the sin of slavery. It's, it was an incredibly impactful book, especially on Abraham Lincoln. When Abraham Lincoln met Stowe at the start of the Civil War, he said to her, so this is the little lady that started this great war. That's how powerful that book was. Stowe opens up chapter 31 of her book by quoting Habakkuk 1 verse 13. In her mind, slavery was a great injustice, and this verse is appropriate as, an, as a lament for the institution of slavery. You, God, who have purer eyes than to see evil, cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? Why do you let slavery continue in this country, Lord? Is what she was using that verse to say. Habakkuk also says this, why do you remain silent? Verse 13. When the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. In other words, how can you let the wicked be swallowed up by somebody more wicked than us? That doesn't seem right, Lord. I know we've been bad, says Habakkuk. I talked about it in verses 1 through 4, but how can you have somebody even more wicked than us exact judgment upon us? And then Habakkuk, the master poet, he gives this extended analogy about fish and fishing. And if you like fishing... This is not a positive analogy, okay? It's not like Jesus talking about fishers of men. Here's what he says, Habakkuk in verse 14. He says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And he, Babylon, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, and he makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? In other words, what Habakkuk's saying here is, God, you can't allow these wicked Babylonians to keep exacting all of these evil things against nations. They're like fishermen that take fishermen that take fish out of the sea and destroy nations for their own riches and instead of worshiping you they worship their own might they worship their own power remember verse 11 they are guilty men whose own might is their god why do you let this happen god why don't you put a stop to this why don't you show those babylonians who's boss that's what habakkuk is complaining about here how can you let this wicked nation continue to do this and take countries that are not their own like for instance, Jerusalem, Judea, Judah. What's Habakkuk struggling with here? He's struggling with why does God allow evil and suffering in our world? That's the question of theodicy. It's, it's the thing that people have struggled with, with for centuries. 
How do we reconcile the, the evil that's done in our world with a sovereign God? You know, some of you might ask similar questions in our day. Why, why God, do you allow Muslim extremists, extremists to, to kill Christians around the world? Why do you allow that? Why don't you put a stop to that? Why do you let murderers, murderers get off scot-free? Why do you allow wicked nations to continue to exploit their people and persecute their people like leaders in China do right now in Venezuela and Iran? Why do you allow wicked politicians in our country get away with evil? Why do you allow wicked pastors in our country to get away with evil? Do something, Lord. How long, O oh Lord, will we put up with this? This is, the, this is the issue of theodicy. Habakkuk was not the first person or the last person to struggle with this. Why God is allowing this. Some of you may remember that William Blake poem, The Tiger. Y'all remember that poem? Maybe some of you had to memorize it when you were in grade school. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? What in the world was Blake writing about? <laughs> and why did we have to memorize that? Well, he was writing about God, to God, about the tiger. Where did this terrifying beast come from? Why did God create this thing that had, has these massive claws and massive jaws? And, I mean, it's just a walking killing machine. You guys ever seen a tiger up close? It's, it's a little intimidating. Like, man, that thing is built to kill. Why did God create that? That's what he's asking here. And then Blake writes this. He says, when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? In other words, did the same God who made the lamb make the, make the tiger? How can God be both the God who rules over the Israelites, but also rules over the Babylonians? Did the same God who saved Israel with the Exodus out of Egypt also bring the Babylonians to exact punishment upon Israel? The tiger and the lamb. That, that God's sovereign over both of them. And he uses both for his sovereign purposes. In the New Testament era, we might say it this way. In our day, we might say, you know, this, this may be a question you've wrestled with. Is, is the God of mercy also a God of judgment? Does the same God who sent Jesus to die for our sins actually send people to hell for rejecting Jesus? You might even ask about Jesus. Is the same guy who died upon the cross for my sins, is he the one in the book of Revelation that comes with a sword coming out of his mouth to exact judgment upon his enemies? How do we reconcile those two realities of who God is? You've got to reconcile them. He's both. He's the Savior and he's the judge. He's a God of righteousness as well as a God of mercy. He's got to be both. He's got to be both. And here's how Habakkuk ends his complaint. Here's how he finishes this argument before the Lord. You can write this down as number three in your notes. It's not a flattering description of him. Habakkuk climbs on his high horse. That's what he does. Habakkuk says in chapter two, verse one, I will take my stand at my watch post. That's what a prophet did. Stand as a watchman listening for the Lord and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, to see what Yahweh will say to me. 
and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In other words, I rest my case, Lord. The defense rests. I've made my case. What are you going to say back to me, Lord? How can you respond to my perfect arguments about the injustice of what's going on here? What's amazing here is that, again, well, I think, first of all, it's amazing that God doesn't just vaporize Habakkuk right now for arguing with him. But even even more amazing than that is that God answers him again. God is not put off or insulted by Habakkuk's impertinence. But he does need to address what Habakkuk doesn't understand about his work and about what he's doing. God responds. Remember, this is an argument among friends, not among enemies. And so God answers Habakkuk's second complaint. We don't have time for that today. We'll talk about that next week, the, re- the response, God's second response to Habakkuk. But here's what I'd like to do for the balance of our time together. We're going to take communion in just a few moments. And before we do that, I, I want to... Habakkuk 1, I just walked you through it. I want to extract a few applicational principles from this chapter. And what's my prayer for you guys every week, for me too, is that we wouldn't just be hearers of God's word, but we would be doers of God's word. How do we do Habakkuk 1? How do we we apply this? Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.16, You guys know this. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. What are the 2 Timothy 3.16 implications of Habakkuk chapter 1? I'll give you three things. And then we're done. Here's number one. Be amazed, church, Be amazed. Look at God's past work and be astounded. The Lord told Habakkuk in verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. But, you know, of course, Habakkuk couldn't see what God was doing. He couldn't understand how he would use Babylon to accomplish this great purpose or some, some great thing that God was doing. But with the benefit of hindsight, we can see what God was doing. You see, one of the things that Habakkuk was struggling with is how God was going to use Israel to bring salvation to the world. Several years before Habakkuk, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied that God would actually use Israel to bring about salvation for the nations, to be a light to the nations. And Habakkuk is looking on Israel right now, looking on Judah and saying, we've got horrible leaders, everybody's evil, and then there's an even more evil nation coming to punish us. How in the world is that going to bring salvation to the world? How's God going to use the nation of Israelites if we're off in exile in Babylon to bring about salvation to the nations? Habakkuk couldn't see it, but we can see it. We can see it, and here's how. You see, if the Jews had never been taken into exile, the gospel wouldn't have been spread throughout the Roman Empire. It might not have even spread to where you are right now, in pagan Decatur, Illinois, God had a purpose with that exile. After the exile, a lot of Jews came back and rebuilt 
Jerusalem 70 years after that exile. But a lot of Jews, not everybody came back to Jerusalem. A lot of Jews stayed in dispersion. They stayed in Babylon. They stayed in Persia. They stayed in Egypt. And then when Rome came to power and built those roads, the Jews spread even farther into the Roman Empire. And where did they go? Throughout, wherever they went throughout the Roman Empire, they would set up synagogues and they would worship Yahweh. And so the nation of Israel was no longer localized after that exile in, in Israel. They were all over the place. So they set up these synagogues throughout the Roman Empire. And you know who came to worship at those synagogues? It wasn't just Jews. It was also, it was also these gentle, Gentile God-fearers that, that were interested in the God of the Israelites. And so when Christianity started to spread after Jesus' resurrection, all these Jews and all these God-fearers in the far-flung cities of Rome got saved. If you want to know more about that, just read the book of Acts. Paul goes all over the Roman Empire, and there's a synagogue here, there's a synagogue here. Why aren't they in Israel? Because of the exile. Because God spread them throughout the world. And when you know, it's Paul was going there, Jews got saved, Gentiles got saved, and the church exploded. God did this great work because of what happened initially with the Gentiles, with the Jews being taken into exile into Babylon. Could Habakkuk have seen that 600 years before Christ? Of course not. Of course not. He had to trust God with that. According to Tim Keller, there's even a greater irony in this. He says, You know, human sacrifice, the Colosseum, violent public spectacles, infanticide, and slavery itself were things that in the ancient world were complete givens. All the ancient peoples did this. All human societies did it. And because the Babylonians came and took the Jews off into exile, and then the Greeks later conquered the Babylonians and made Greek the lingua franca, for the first time you could write a book and everybody in the world could understand it, like the Bible in Greek. Then the Romans rose up and they conquered everybody and you could travel everywhere because everybody was at peace because they were under Rome. You had what was called the the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And you had these roads and in other words, if this succession of dominant world powers, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans hadn't arisen, Christianity never would have spread. And here's an additional irony, the violence of those great nations that led to Christianity and its spread has actually made all nations in the world less violent because of Christianity. Could Habakkuk have seen that 600 years before Christ, before Paul spread the gospel? No. He had to trust the Lord. But let me say this. We can see it. We can look back and see God's astounding work through the centuries and how he even used that exile to bring the gospel to pagan Gentiles like us who needed the gospel. Habakkuk, and what's amazing about Habakkuk, we looked at this last week in chapter three, he doesn't know any of this. He can't see any of this, but he praises God anyway. He says, I'm gonna worship you even though I don't understand what you're doing, God. We can praise praise God for Habakkuk for what he wasn't able to see. We're able to see it. What an awesome God we serve. Amen, church? God was orchestrating all these things, and we can look back and we'd be astounded at what he has done. I'll give you another example, a more modern example of this. hundred years ago, they kicked out all the missionaries of, in China, the Western missionaries, because of the Boxer Rebellion. And at the time, as all the missionaries were leaving China, and 
you know, we were all terrified that the church was going to fold, that all of this work that we had done in China was going to go down the toilet, you know, because all the white people got kicked out of the country. You know, they don't have the white Western missionaries. They can't survive without us. Little did they know that after the Boxer Rebellion, after all the Western missionaries got kicked out, the church in China exploded. It's still exploding, by the way. And that's because the Chinese leaders took control of their own churches and they started to multiply and God did this amazing work. Could the missionaries 100 years ago who got kicked out of the country see that? No, they couldn't see that. Actually, it's even more recent than that. You know, the Tiananmen Square massacre, the 30-year anniversary of that took place a couple weeks ago. You all remember Tank Man? Hundreds and thousands of people, freedom-loving Chinese people, Died and the government won't acknowledge them. They won't admit any of that happened. The government actually is really nervous about how fast Chinese Christianity is spreading. And I just read, just read in a book recently, Rebecca McLaughlin's book, uh, Confronting Christianity, that by 2030, Christians in China might outnumber Christians in America. How awesome is that? And I listened to a podcast this last week talking about the Tiananmen Square massacre and and what a, what a horrible tragedy that was. But in this podcast, the person who was talking was saying that God has used that to bring about great revival throughout China because people are turning away from the government, knowing that the government can't save them, and they're turning to Christ. Could people 30 years ago see that, that God was going to orchestrate this massacre to bring about something good? Of course not. God's Work is mysterious, and we can't understand it. And sometimes we can look back and we can see, oh, that's what God was doing. Oh, that's why he did that. Oh, look how that brought about something great. I'll tell you right now, though, we can't always see that. And more often than not, your life and my life has lived in the here and now, right, looking forward. And so that leads to my second application, and it's this. Be amazed at looking back, but also believe and trust God's character when you don't understand his ways. You've seen what God has done. You know his character from this book. You're going to have to trust that when you don't understand what he's doing in your life or in my life. You've got to trust him when life doesn't make sense. You've got to be confident in the God that he is and the God that he reveals himself to be even when you don't understand what he's doing in your life. That's the place that Habakkuk gets to, and that's where we need to get to, by the way. You know, Sonia and I, we've, we've been ministered to recently by a British hip-hop artist called Governor B. I love what this guy is doing. I love his music. You know, Alistair says that I get obsessed by musicians and I just listen to them nonstop for weeks. I think he's right. This is my current obsession, Governor B. And Governor B writes a song on his latest CD. Do they still call him that anymore? I don't know, whatever it is. His latest release. And, and he's got this song about his father who died before he was able to see him. And it he rushed all the way to the hospital, didn't get to say goodbye to his dad. Here's what he says. He says, and then I pulled up to his bedside and I saw him wired up. I swear my faith got fired up. 
I said, Lord, you're higher up. Help my daddy rise up and fight tough. But he didn't. Time's up. They say the Lord knows best. How? Because I never felt so let down. And yo, my daddy was a good guy. Even though we had good times, I couldn't even say goodbye. And Sonny and I were, we were contrasting this experience that this man had with what we experienced with Sonny's mom, who, who over time, you know, a year and a half, suffered and suffered and suffered. And we were asking all along, why does this have to go on so long? Why does she have to suffer so long? And then Governor B is here saying, why, why, didn't, why didn't I get to say goodbye to my dad? He died so suddenly. What, you know, what's right in that? What's, what's, what's God doing in that? Is one better than the other? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why God does what he does. But we have to trust him and serve him and believe in those moments that God is bringing about his good result in the midst of that. Is everybody with me? Even when we don't understand what God is doing, we believe, we trust him, we trust his character in those moments. D.L. Moody said it this way. He said, I would a thousand times rather that God's will should be done than my own. I cannot see into the future as God can. Therefore, it is a good deal better to let him choose for me than to choose for myself. Can we amen D.L. together there? Come on now, church. Preach it, D.L. Moody. Let's go. Absolutely, he can see the future. We can't. We have to trust him when we can't. And that leads to my last application. Everybody ready for this? Chill out. <laughs> Chill out, church. God's got the whole world in his hands. We sing that song to our kids. Got the whole world in his hands. Do we believe it? Just a warning here. Be careful, harvesticator. Make sure you don't get up on your high horse and try to judge God and his actions and his ways in this world. We have a limited scope we can't see ultimately what God is doing in our world. We've got to trust him. We've got to chill out and, and know that he's, got, he's sovereign. He's got the whole world in his hands. Remember that hymn from William Cooper? God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. God's ways are mysterious. Church, they're mysterious. We can't always grasp what he's doing. So, chill out. Let's turn to your neighbor right now and say, chill out. God's got the whole world in his hands. Alistair Beck says this. Just imagine this being said with a Scottish accent, okay? <laughs> because God is almighty, he can and he does at times do things that are the opposite of what we might anticipate in order that his purpose may be achieved. And in such times, we must learn to say, I'm not sure exactly what's happening here, but I do know certain facts to be true of God. And so until such times as God chooses to make the hazy clear, I will hold on to what I'm confident of. 
And I will use that to face up to that which at the present time remains uncertain. Speaking of mysterious, speaking of injustice, can you imagine what Habakkuk would have said at Christ's death upon the cross? I mean, Habakkuk, he's an emotional guy. Imagine this innocent guy being put to death by all these wicked leaders. God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Defend the innocent right now. Do something, God. Can't you see Habakkuk doing that in the time of Christ? Can't. Why did God allow that, church? Maybe you've wondered that. Maybe you've gotten angry reading through the Gospels and seeing what they did to Christ and how injustice was perpetrated in that time. Maybe you get angry when you watch the Passion of the Christ and say, why why did it have to happen like that? Why did you allow your son to die like that? But let me ask you this, Harvest Decatur, would you reverse it if you could? Would you change it? Aladdin's lamp is right here. You go over there, you rub it, genie comes out. I wish that Christ didn't have to suffer and die so horribly 2,000 years ago. Would you wish that? Careful now. Because that act of injustice that God allowed in his sovereign purposes is what justifies you and keeps you from being punished because of your sins. God allowed the greatest injustice in the history of the world. Why? So that your sins could be atoned for. So that we could be saved. So trust God. Chill out. Be confident in his purposes, even when you don't understand what he's doing. And speaking of Christ and his suffering, the Anglican priest, John Stott, he said this, once he's gone home to be with the Lord but I love this quote sorry I know I have a lot of quotes today but if you would just suffer me one more because this is so good and I want to enter into a time of communion meditating on this Stott says I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross the only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to pain? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. And our suffering has become more manageable in light of his. I don't know if Habakkuk could have handled that when Jesus died, the injustice of that. But I know this, in God's perfect plan, Jesus' suffering on the cross paid for my sin, paid for your sin, paid for Habakkuk's sin. 
This is our God. This is who we love. This is who we serve. This is who we're going to remember now in communion. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. God, you work in a mysterious way. Your wonders to perform. We don't always understand what you're doing or why you do it. But we trust your character. And we thank you that you were a God who entered into this world of brokenness and suffering and died a gruesome death to save us from it. And we remember you now, Lord. We worship you. We worship you.